This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Oh, here we go, boys. that sound. This is a good one. Welcome to the Full Scale Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host Nick Johnson and today we are being joined by Ben Webster. Ben is the owner of Prairie Limits Outfitters in Saskatchewan and also Big Kansas Outdoors in Kansas and uh, also happens to be my boss. We're going to be saying some very nice things about Ben here today and getting his opinions on a whole bunch of stuff. Should be a great episode and happy to have you here, Ben. Perfect. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, let's start out with the here and now. Um, We've been chasing snow geese and it's been going uh, actually Pretty good, in my opinion. Uh, we've had some some good feeds that turned out to be tough hunts, and some feeds that weren't so like promising and ended up turning out pretty good. I mean, typical snow goose hunting. Um, what's your thoughts on the snow goose game and this season? How it's been going? I think the season's been going great. Um, it started out really hot and heavy. We had. Not an overabundance of juvies, but we did have a nice juvie population, and it got really cold. We lost those birds, in my opinion, and then uh, Nebraska got that 8 to 12 inches of snow, and I think we got that leading edge of adults back. So the last three days have been a little tough, but I think we're still averaging like 35 birds a hunt or 32 birds a hunt, something like that. I'd have to re, you know... Um, do that math again but right it kind of seemed like um well here in central kansas it's not the main flyway of snow geese that are coming up we're kind of on like the outer fringes and it definitely seemed like we had the leading edge adults which then 
kind of pushed out and we were like kind of in that middle ground like we were waiting for birds but having a 30 bird average is um not bad by anybody's standards uh, i think it's incredible uh last year was really rough on us it was very cold um not a lot of birds around i think i only had three or four pockets of birds compared to you know six or seven like usual um and it was just a rough season so we're pretty happy with what's going on so far right and my most most of my experience like uh chasing snow geese would have to be like either a in canada or b the dakotas where you really get like a pinch point of snow geese and and, and it's just there's honestly there's like millions around so for us, for me, it's a little bit of a change of pace to be out here kind of chasing pockets of like 20 to 60,000 geese. And um, honestly, it's a little bit nerve wracking, like, because, um, man, uh, as you know, these snows have been flying between what, 25 and 45 miles to go feed? Yeah, that feed that, or I followed those birds, birds out east the other day and I as a crow flies, they went 32 miles. Right, and then I... Uh, was scouting the other night and I found two feeds and they were as the crow flies like between 27 and 31 miles from the roost and at that point too it doesn't even matter like if you've got even a hundred thousand geese if they're breaking apart and going all sorts of different directions and they're going for 30 miles it's like holy fuck man I hope these birds come back tomorrow yeah I mean <laughs> it's not your typical giant snow goose feed we're you know, well, you know, we're hunting feeds anywhere from like three, four thousand to ten k. Um, right. You know, later in the year we might hunt some bigger, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand bird feeds. But for now, you know, we're making do with three, four thousand bird feeds, and uh, as long as they come back, right? Right. Because um, the thing I worry about too is like, shit, if they don't come back, and we're twenty five miles away from the roost. What kind of traffic are we going to see out here? You know, like None. no, no traffic, <laughs> no traffic. But actually, yesterday, I, I feel like um, we may, it might have just been a luck thing, but we actually had a good amount of trafficking birds. And uh, yesterday on the hunt I ran, we shot forty-one snow geese and had some pretty damn good decoy in action. Dude, the best flock. Uh, I don't know if I told you this or not. Uh, the best flock that I had yesterday must have been like well, first of all, it was a mixed flock. And the dark geese, there were specks, and specks just locked up hard, but there were snows right behind them. And uh, I said, guys, this whole front, this whole front wall is specks. We're going to wait for the snows. And uh, so the whole first wall kind of comes in, and it's a high, windy day. But then when they banked, they just joined the snow geese. So we must have had like 200 snow geese just sitting on our face. And mixed in, there was probably like 50 specks and like 15 cacklers. And uh, I was like, I turned the e-callers all the way off, like right when they were sitting on our face. And I said, I'm sorry, guys, <laughs> we can't do this. Yeah. We can't do this, guys, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh man, but uh, I mean, it was a 41 bird hunt that we shot like well, We're not day. in Arkansas, you know, the Arkansas boys just <laughs> send it. <and laughs> whatever happens, happens, you know? This is not I mean, our... you can. I don't care what anybody says. You watch your videos, you can hear them in the back, you know, in the flock. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, all right, all right they're going to send it. All right, cool. And, and yeah. one thing uh, I, I, that I've learned about you since I started working with you and something that I actually really, really appreciate about working with you is that we are by the book. Like, there ain't no gray area. It's all black and white. Everything is legal. And if um, it does happen sometimes where a client will make a mistake 
and shoot a bird he's not supposed to, uh, either here or in Canada. Um, how many times would you say that you have uh, called the game warden on somebody in your career? Only once in Canada, believe it or not, so okay. far, which is interesting. Right. Um, here in Kansas, I mean, we'll... This year, knock on wood, we haven't had to call a game warden about shooting something out of season, but last year we called about shooting a couple specs. Uh, last year during snow season, somebody shot a Canada, thought it was a blue. Um, we've shot a pintail out of season. I mean, it's pretty common. What does the, what is the uh, game wardens mostly say? I know like it happened once in Canada last year, and the game warden was like, give us, your, give us his hunting license number, and we're going to mail him a warning. Um, what, what do they normally say? Like you're in Kansas, they find people. We have a new game warden now, so I actually haven't had to call him about that issue yet, but the few game wardens that I have had to deal with, as long as everyone is willing to fess up to it, like if someone's willing to take the fall, they're going to give them a warning. If somebody doesn't take the fall, I don't know how that's going to end up. Right, right. You know, they, they know that, you know, accidents happen. It's not a big deal. Clients aren't from here. They're not used to shooting into mixed flocks of Canada's and specs and blah, blah, blah. So if it happens, as long as you, you know, self-report, it's going to go a lot better for you in the long run. Right. Don't try to hide it or uh, if something, if a mistake gets made, you've, yeah. you you fess up, you call the game warden. Yeah. And, yeah. and for me, I, I know it sounds bad if, if you're a paying client and you don't want, you know, the game warden called on you, but like my guides don't shoot. Right. And... You know, my careers were way more important than a client, and that I'm not trying to say that in a bad way, but clients aren't replaceable. Like my job's not right. Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's where uh, I appreciate that too. You know, we don't shoot; we just follow the rules. It's like, hey, there's no question. Like, hey, what are we gonna do about this? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yep. well, you know what you're gonna fucking do about that. We're gonna do the right thing every fucking time. So just for me, that's a comforting feeling that I'm not going to be put as an employee, like in a position where I am uncomfortable. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yep. But, but speaking of like your career, um, you're 34 now, correct? Yep. So what? take us through your career in the waterfowl industry. Like um, now you're the owner of an outfit in uh, Saskatchewan and an owner in of a both successful outfits, Saskatchewan and Kansas. How did uh, how did a young Benjamin Webster find himself uh, growing into this position? Um, man, that's hard. I, I started. I moved back to Hutchinson when I was like nineteen, and uh, when I was twenty, I met a guy that was d through taxidermy. I was just fun hunting around here for a couple of years, and then uh, I started to scout for Central Kansas Outfitters, which is actually still around. Right. When I was 20 years old and uh, scouted for them for a couple of years. And then one of the owners got pushed out and asked me to start an outfit with them. So we became 50-50 partners in what, what is, well, kind of still high caliber outdoors. Um, he's not doing too much now, but he does fishing and some turkey hunts. But um, after, I think, four or five years, it uh, just wasn't working out with me and him. So we split ways and... I started Big Kansas Outdoors, and I think I'm on year seven right now. Six, year seven? Six or seven. I'd have to go back and look, but um, it's been great. And Canada just kind of fell through high caliber in Big Kansas. I met a guy named Brian Kramer and Rusty. Right. And uh, me and Brian started going up to Saskatchewan to 
DIY, you know, do it yourself on the east side of Saskatchewan, shooting honkers and ducks every year. We did it two years in a row, and one year we were up there, and I was like, man, I'd love to start, you know, an outfit up here one day. And he's like, let's do it. And, you know, I thought it was a joke, kind of laughed. And he's like, no, I'm serious. Let's let's look into it. And I was like, all right. So I started looking into it, and we found those zones for sale and went up there, hunted for three, four days, and really just we'd hunt in the mornings and then just drive around all afternoon and evening and check just, out the area. And, just kind of see, is, does, is there really potential to do a real business out here? Yep, yep. And we were pretty fortunate because it was like Halloween so it was pretty late. Yeah. So we were lucky that everything wasn't locked up and right. stuff like that. And and uh, now the know. regulatory framework for um, operating a business in Saskatchewan is much different than operating a business in Kansas. Like Kansas does. Is there any sort of laws or guide yeah. guide laws at all? No. No. And so that's the same as like just off the top of my head, like Minnesota, South Dakota, Oklahoma. Um, there's no like guide license or anything like that. Now, when you get up to into Saskatchewan, there is crazy amounts of regulation. Yep. How'd you end up navigating that? Um, man, it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of work. I mean, it, you, yeah, you, you got to get approved to even purchase a license and blah 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 blah. You can only own X amount of zones. We have three. Um, you know, we'd love to get two more because you can own five. But as of right now, we're pretty solid where we're at. So, then, so you can you can actually own what we're talking about is like an allotment, correct? Is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, oh. uh, they're WMZs. WMZ Water Wildlife Management ours, Zones. Actually, ours might be WMUs. Wildlife units. Management Units. Alberta's WMZs or WMUs were the opposite. I can't right, remember. Right, because I know like when I go scouting, I've got hard lines where it's like do not go past this. So an outfitter yep. actually, um, I, I suppose that's to keep too many outfitters from being in the same place. Yep. But. Um, so we have three different zones that we're allowed to scout and take clients hunting in, and you're yep. allowed up to five? Yep. For sure. By law. So the one is so far east that we actually don't even touch it usually. I think we've only hunted it in a few times. Um, I'd like to get a couple of the zones that are south of us. I think that'd really open us up. Um, north of us is just too far, I think, from the lodge. But regardless, where our, lo our lodge is not centrally located. It's west central of our zones so that kind of creates a problem and adding oh, okay. new zones so we'll see how that goes and what the years you know the future holds but as of right now i mean we're having a phenomenal season as you know we shot twelve thousand and ninety birds in 57 days of hunting which <laughs> yeah. is i think the average per hunt was like 57 56 birds per hunt that okay. includes afternoon hunts. So 56 birds per hunt. Now, if you are a potential person who would like to come up and hunt in Saskatchewan with Prairie Limits Outfitters, it's prairielimitsoutfitters.com. Let's repeat that. 56 birds per hunt. Now, your group will do five hunts, correct? In their yep. three days. Yep. You'd book a three-day. You'd hunt morning, afternoon, morning, afternoon, and then a morning. And the average... For all of phrase for not just for each day, it's for each hunt, each individual hunt, each a morning hunt, yeah. afternoon hunt, morning hunt, afternoon hunt. Each one of those hunts, the average is fifty six. Now, like that is a number that is fucking mind blowing, yeah, it's, dude. It's wild. So if you want to talk about like an absolute dream waterfall trip, and then you come back to the lodge, 
which uh, both me and you struggled with this quite a bit. Miss mm-hmm. Tilly's bread. Miss <laughs> oh. Tilly's everything. The caramel Cookies, rolls. Cookies, cinnamon buns, her gravy. Oh, oh dude. I'm still drooling, I've drooling never, about her gravy I've right never now. ate so much gravy in my <laughs> entire fucking life, yeah, dude. gravy on everything. <laughs> oh, I love it. But uh, I actually went on like a one-month like hiatus of eating any sweets while I was up there, which honestly... I had that's to. That's impressive. I had to. Well, the problem is they set them on that countertop where you got to walk by to go to the bathroom. You got to walk by to go to the back storage room, blah, blah, blah. See, so, you know, even just going in the shower, you might grab one cookie. Pretty right. soon you, you've eaten <laughs> a baker's dozen and you don't even really realize it until you and think about it. You're those, like, oh, I'm a fat piece of shit. Dude, how, how many pounds of flour did we go through when we were up there? When we were up there? I don't know. But we're going to keep track of it this year because I think it'd be. I want to know how many dozens of cookies got eaten. That we should keep track yeah. of it. That would be an actually. I do like. Awesome. I like stats. I like fifty-six I like, birds per hunt. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I You're like a stat keep, guy. Keeping track of how many birds we kill per hunt and then uh, what species. I usually only did dark geese, snows, and ducks. But next year, I'd like to do like down to the species. Spoonie. Down to the spoonie. Huh? Yeah. Be like we shot three blue wing teal. You know. 16 coots, 27 <laughs> redheads, you know? like Have we killed a coot in Saskatchewan ever? Uh, we have. But, I mean, they, okay, so that 56 bird per hunt average also includes a few coots. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we killed any this season, though. No, I didn't see any dead coots. In yeah, the but we didn't or... hunt. I mean, we guess we hunted some water. More staging ponds for mallards and pintails, but early is when you're going to shoot like that mixed bag. Like that first couple weeks of September, well, September in general, is when if you go hunt a slough in the afternoon to finish up your duck limit, you might shoot, you know, some teal or some gadwalls or widgeon or, or whatever. But primarily when you're field hunting, I mean, I think we've shot a wood duck once in the field. They pass shot a bluebill or something. You've and got a couple black ducks up there, haven't you? Yep, black ducks. We sh- uh, not this this year we didn't kill any did i don't we? think so i didn't see them but i heard about them yeah the year before we killed two black ducks and then a black duck mallard hybrid yeah um i mean it is absolutely phenomenal up there what what date would you say that the snow geese are arriving and we're doing consistent afternoon snow goose hunts probably on average on an average year i would say about like september 20th yeah but we did some we did some early this year i mean this yeah. year we were even Josh like, running the Hickson group was doing them a few times. Yeah, I, I think they did some like 8th, 10th, you know. Sometimes when you get up there, there's you'll see, you know, well, we were taking bets on opener, remember? We are like, oh, there's 20 snow geese in my field. I'll, I'll shoot five tomorrow. Sure, you know? yeah. I saw two when I uh, uh, was driving to the lodge just in a pond off the side of the road, and that would have been on like August 26th. Yep. There was two snow geese in Saskatchewan already hanging yep. out. I'm I'm excited about it. I'm really excited to show you what spring season in Saskatchewan is like because it's it's not even comparable to any snow goose hunting, almost any hunting that you do in general. So somebody who's used to hunting snow geese within the continental United States sometime between or before, or well, let's say between, between February 1st and let's say March 31st, which is when most all of us are going to be doing our continental 48, lower 48 um, spring conservation snow goose hunts. What changes with snow geese 
um, happen either with the landscape they go into or their biological needs that makes our spring snow goose hunting in April and May so successful? I don't know that anyone actually knows 100%. My theory is, is I, 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 th I think there's, multi there's two different things, I think, in my, in my mind. One, as a male, you become a dumbass around hot females, right? Right. Yeah. So the so, breeding season's just getting so much closer that they start to. I think pair a little up. bit is it's like a buck, you know, about starting to, be to go in the into rut. rut right? Yeah, like yeah. It's like it's like a pre-rut thing because. Right. But I also think that they're like, all right, it's the last time that we're gonna eat grain. Yes. Before our longest flight. Right. Back to the tundra where we're gonna eat grasses and bugs for four months. Yeah, and they. Okay, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I want you to continue. <laughs> yeah, so in my head, I think they're, number one, starting to think about breeding because mm -hmm. you will shoot a lot of pears and stuff. Mm -hmm. But also they're like, all right, we need to put on as much food as, you know, freaking possible. So, And we're talking, like, by the time we leave, which is going to, this is going to be a whole new ballgame for you. And that's why I say running hunts in Canada in the spring is bittersweet. By the time we leave... Shooting time will be like 4.45 a.m. Right. That's when and you load up. it'll and be ready. like 9.30, 9.40 at night. Right. So that's, um, I don't know, let's just say from 5 a.m. till 10 p.m. That's 17 hours of legal shooting time. Yep. And they'll feed for like six, seven hours in the morning. What? They will feed for six or seven so, hours in so the morning. So you got snow geese going out and they're starting to hit the fields around. That's first light. Like 4.45, 5 a.m. Yep. And they're going to be there till 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning? Yep. That provides for a good amount of scouting ability as well. Oh, a ton of scouting. And then that night, okay, sunset's not until 9.30. Um, you know, like here in the United States, you might think like, oh, uh, we should be there two and a half, maybe three hours early. How early are you showing up um, um, for those afternoon hunts? As, if it's cloudy, we want clients there at like three. At like three. Because you'll, so you'll just shoot like that random volley. But we we've also seen it where it's got it gets really really good between like five and seven, sure four and six like that's like the main flight. So, Even though we can shoot to like nine thirty, a lot of times it's like eight o'clock, and by then they're already where they're gonna be for the rest of the night because right. they're gonna eat as much as they can. So you're not really seeing many birds fly around. So like a lot close of times, to sunset. yeah. So like a lot of times it's like eight eight thirty, and we're like guys like. We can sit another hour. We might shoot another flock. We could shoot two, but we've seen it slow down exponentially around this time. And you can just, everyone can kind of feel it, right? You get this monster push of birds, and then it goes to, like, the beginning of the hunt, where you'll, like, get a flock. Right. And then you'll hang out for 20, 30 minutes. You'll, you'll work another flock. And so by then, like, you know, most of the guys have shot over 100 birds that day, and they're like, well... You know, let's go get dinner. Let's just go get dinner, right? Right. Because if you don't, if you, we do have groups that want to sit all the way till the end of shooting time. You're not back at the lodge till like 10, 10 30 at night. And then you got to get up at three o'clock in the morning for like your next two. Yeah, at like two o'clock in the morning for yeah. your next morning hunt. Yeah. So that's why I always say to any guides, I'm like, we sleep more during the day. It's like having a graveyard shift job. Yeah. You sleep more during the day than you do at night. I'm okay with that, I think. Yeah. But it goes, to, um, like, 
we just we kind of started off this conversation of what do you think is the difference between why our hunts in Saskatchewan are so successful? Um, now you were just saying that the birds were feeding for like six hours in the morning, and then going back out. You know, you said they're feeding to like 10 a.m. And then like that four to six, they're only taking a five or six hour break. And then they're getting back out there for another yeah. four to six hours. Now you're seeing geese feed for somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 hours per day. Yeah, let alone if there's some kind of precipitation. And then if there's, yeah, if it's They'll raining all... For 14 hours. For 14 hours yeah. straight. And I think you're right too because um, a lot of... Snow geese, I was kind of jumping on myself to, to vindicate or validate what you were saying is like, yeah, they're going to, at around May 12th to May 20th, the strong majority of those snow geese are going to leave and they're going to, the strong majority of those, over 90% of snow geese actually are nesting in the Arctic Circle now. It used to actually be backwards from that. They used to actually nest subarctically. Now they nest arctically and... Um, when they show up, a lot of times it's they still have ice. You know, it's still yeah. icy up there. They might not get a solid meal for a couple, two, three weeks. They've got to bring all that energy with them. And not, I mean, if you think like flying from Stuttgart, Arkansas to uh, central Saskatchewan is a long way, that's nothing compared to the voyage that they have to make from central Saskatchewan to their actual breeding grounds in the Arctic. And they're going to be doing that in like two days. They're going to fly like from... On May 15th, they're leaving, and on May 17th, they're landing in the Arctic, and they're starting to pluck feathers out and build a nest bowl. Yep. So it, it, it's, it, I'm very excited to kind of be in this scenario of snow goose hunting where um, the, the biology of the birds changes dramatically to the hunter's favor. Yep, big time. I mean, I always tell people that whatever you know about snow goose hunting for the most part in the United States, throw it out the window. Mm-hmm. Just forget about that. Because we're kind of dealing with almost like a different bird. Yeah, you're almost going to set up like you're hunting hawkers. Mm-hmm. You're going to set like 10 to 15 dozen full bodies. We hide from an edge, typically in layout. Sometimes if clients need to or we think we can get away with it, we'll do A-frames like up against the bush. We run an e-collar on low. We might run a couple flappers. Mm-hmm. We don't run rotaries. We don't run silo flappers. I'm talking clones. And those clones end up getting pulled at some time, and we land adults. Right. We shot like 3,600 last year, and I bet you we didn't even shoot 100 juvies. Wow. That's something I want to keep track of this year, too. How many? I, do you, I guess I don't know. I wonder when a juvie actually loses those gray feathers. But um, t- Not till the next year. Not till the next year? Yeah. Okay. And it, it's... Uh, yeah, just throw everything you know about snow goose hunting out the window and uh, kind of relearn it from there. Yep. You, you won't want to spring snow goose hunt here anymore. And I, I think, uh, too, like another big part of it is the lack of hunting pressure when you get up there. Now, like everybody in the, who hunts the, the, the lower 48 is familiar with like birds like running the ice line. Like they are just, they're, they are in a fucking race a, they're pushing the snow line constantly. It's like birds are racing north, but they're not racing to the Arctic because birds cannot go. They can't leave for the Arctic to like May 12th, May 20th right yep. now as it is. So it's, it doesn't matter how fast. It doesn't matter if they get to central Saskatchewan and Alberta on uh, March 15th or April 30th because they still can't leave there. 
until May 12th, basically, maybe May 10th at the earliest. So I feel like sometimes what they're really racing through the continental United States is, I feel like they're racing to get out of the fucking hunting pressure. They want to... It's very possible. Like, they, like from Arkansas to, a, to South Dakota. South Dakota has a lot of outfitters. Once you get to North Dakota, which is basically like the heart of the um, uh, prairie pothole region, it, um, the, the hunting pressure falls off a fucking cliff. So when people feel like they like all oh, these birds are just racing up to get to their breeding grounds, not really. They cannot. Yeah. They have a hard line. They can't leave until May tenth. There's no fucking reason. They're trying to get out of Arkansas, Missouri. You know, I read this paper too. This is a tangent. I read this paper about snow geese that was written by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service from the uh, from the um, it was like the 1950s, and it was saying that well at that time most all snow geese wintered along the Texas coast. And they were saying, like, the snow geese show up around uh, mid-October, and they leave around mid-April. Like, so, they were, yeah, they, back then, like, in the 1950s, they would have snow geese down on the Texas coast till mid-April, because they didn't, those geese pretty much flew coast to coast, like, as their migration, from, like, and back then, it wasn't so much Arctic breeding, it was more like subarctic breeding, like, let's talk about, like, maybe the Churchill, Manitoba area, like yeah. the Hudson Bay area. And then they would fly down to Texas, which is another bay, basically the the um, the Gulf of Mexico, pretty much. Yep. So you're you're basically flying across the continent, basically in one shot. And they weren't really using too much agricultural food sources. They were basically using like um, coastal food sources. I don't know. That's just a tangent that I had from uh, from. I, uh, I got a question for you. Yeah. What's up? Do you actually believe everything that? U.S. Fish and Wildlife says? I believe they have better information and people who care more than a guy who sits in his pit blind for 45 days and says, the Fish and Wildlife Service is fucking lying. <laughs> no, I get that. I, I get that. I get that. I think there's still a big gap, though. I, do, I think there's a gap, but I think there's nobody... They don't, they don't have enough people collecting research. Yeah, so it's, there's a, it's skewed to me. It's, it's just like when they do the the breeding numbers. Yes, but a it, lot of people say they've got it on point, but I think they, I think it's a fucking joke. I don't know how. I think they're doing the best they can, which is more than what I can say for anybody else's estimates. Or <laughs> true, true, yeah, true, like true, true, true. For yeah. they're 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 out there trying the hardest. Are they right? Maybe not, but I believe them more than I would say believe uh, somebody who just had a bad duck season yep. and wants to sound off on Facebook about it. <laughs> well, so why, in your opinion, is Delta Waterfowl's view on the pintail so much different than U.S. Fish and Wildlife? Now, Delta, let's... Delta uh, waterfowl here's what wants, I understand. Delta Waterfowl wants to go to a three pintail limit. With Drake's only. Only one could be hens. Right, yep. Uh, like uh, a mount, and that would be like after November or something, November 1 or yeah. something. So you could actually identify them. I've, I've seen that. Uh, there's actually a really interesting YouTube video that Delta Waterfowl has out about their position on this and that they're lobbying the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, one thing they've said is that a lot of hens have gotten killed um, because of their nesting in uh, leftover wheat fields and then they get plowed under or their nests get plowed under. And they also said because of this and the high predation on hen pintails being in that short cover um, nesting area, 
that there's a, um, a, a, a high ratio of drakes to hens that are also raping hens till they die. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the chase, like, um, it, it, like people in the lower 48 are also very familiar with like the chase of hen females, hen mallards by drake mallards. Apparently that's also an issue with pintails. And there's so many additional drake pintails. That well, yeah, they, you'll, you'll watch them do their courtship flight and there'll be 15 drakes, drakes chasing so, one hen. Right. And so they want to start, they actually want to reduce the pintail drake population and increase the hens, which um, I'm going to have to defer to their expertise on that. It's, well, my thing, it is, sounds my thing is they already know that hunters don't play that big of a role. Right. So why are we, why are they even bringing it up? Right. Right. I the, mean, the limit's already one in the entire United States. Like yeah, there ain't that many shoot, pintails getting killed. You can shoot eight in, in Canada. Canada. And and the reason and you I, can shoot forty five in Mexico, you can shoot however many the fuck you can shoot in Mexico. That's what I'm saying, man. But the 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 reason that I've always explained this to people, like let people say, like, how come you can shoot eight pintails, eight hen pintails in Canada? It's just because there's so few hunting groups comparatively to the United States. But here's something to think about that they're not thinking about, in my opinion. Okay, Joe Schmo and his buddies might not be that great at hunters. Majority of people that are hunting in Canada are hunting with professionals. Yeah, but they do have harvest statistics. Okay, I don't know if I've ever... Here's a harvest... I could be wrong on that, but in my head, that's what it tells me. that Because when you go to the airport and you fly into Saskatchewan, your flight will be 99% hunters. Yeah, everybody's wearing camo on your airplane. Yeah. Flying in to hunt with outfitters for the most part. For real, yep, yep. But the, it still doesn't amount to the amount of decoy spreads that are set on a daily basis. Here's a statistic in that... In Arkansas? In Arkansas. And here's a statistic that is Arkansas-specific that I, my numbers might have uh, uh, grayed out a little bit in my mind over time. But I looked up the entire Canadian mallard harvest... Now, mind you, they have an eight mallard limit, basically from coast to coast, from British Columbia to Nova Scotia. The entirety of the entire country of Canada, from coast to coast, killed just a few more mallards. I think it was like 10 or 15% more mallards than just Arkansas. So, like, just the hunting pressure is just enormous. Thanks a lot, Arkansas. Yeah, thanks a lot, Arkansas. (laughs) For everybody. What a problem, you know? But it's just because, also because of just the population density of the United States as well. Can but, we t- can we talk about what a joke the society of blaming it on the heated corn ponds is now? Dude, that's so stupid. Where where did that go? All of a sudden, you know, we actually have a real winter, and they have all kinds of ducks in Arkansas and Louisiana, and they have a phenomenal season. They ain't talking shit anymore. Right. It's very interesting how yeah. that works, right? You know, hmm. it, it, there is there is unlimited open water from Canada through the Midwest all winter long. It's called winters. And, and pe- when people say that ducks don't migrate anymore, they're not talking about ducks. They're only talking about mallards. Yeah, that's it. The, the, the mallard is the only species that is going to stay in a winter landscape. All other species of ducks still migrate. Go to Mexico. You will shoot the fuck out of teal, shovelers, wigeons, yeah, you know, like, so when people say, like, the ducks don't migrate anymore, it, they, they are just talking about mallards specifically. Oh, 100%. Um, 
Um, well, dude, we're getting pretty late here on the podcast. We're like a half hour deep, 33 minutes deep. I wanted to kind of finish with, um, what's your, what's your hopes and dreams in the future? Like, I want to know, uh, what, where do you want to hunt? Like, what's your dream hunt, waterfowl specific? And, um, God, like, what would just be like, what's on your fucking bucket list that you're excited about and you want to try? Cause you know you've been to Saskatchewan and you know you know how to hunt birds in the Central Flyway. Like what is, what does a guy like you want to do? Well, I want to. My main thing is I would like to get out of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and go somewhere and someone be like, "This is what we're doing." And shut up. Just yeah, yeah, just yeah, pull yeah. the trigger, right? <laughs> so like I want to like top of the list is I want to kill a harlequin. So Alaska. And what really upsets me is people tell me they're very dumb. But they probably are. Yeah, yeah. They say they're like one of the dumbest divers, and that's really upsetting because they're so damn pretty. Like that's what I want is some harlequins. I'd love to shoot some uh, old squalls, some king eiders, stuff like that. But a even, lot of sea duck is what you're. Yeah, you yeah. want to get I, out of I, your I, comfort zone. I want, I want, out of my comfort zone, I want to do a sea duck hunt, like the whole nine yards. What about Maine eiders eating lobster every night? I'm fine with that too. Yeah, <laughs> but also I would just be down to do a regular diver hunt. Like a real diver hunt, you like know, in the Great Lakes or on the East Coast, wherever. The Florida Georgia border. I've heard that's fucking nuts for divers. Really? Yeah, Florida is nuts for divers. Realistically, I've heard. anywhere. Yeah. I I think I I think I'm relatively a pretty decent shot, but I think that really <laughs> put it to the test. Put, put me in perspective, you know. Plus, well, actually, me and. Uh, um, me and a couple other employees were talking about this the other day. Like, you start guiding, um, you're uh, not such a good shot anymore when you're not shooting every day. Yeah, but <laughs> no offense to our clients. I love them all to death. But then you're like, I do shoot pretty damn good, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know? Yes. Yeah. Please, uh, if you book a hunt, shoot some clay pigeons before you yeah. sh- arrive. Yeah, it helps big time. <laughs> and that's the difference between... Like an outfitter that lets his guide shoot with his clients and then the outfitters that don't. Mm-hmm. You know, we may only go out and shoot 20 birds, but if I had two guides in the blind... Right. They're going to shoot their six and six. So then you're at 32 and that's a damn good hunt. Right. right? Or they're probably going to shoot 12 apiece. Like if you shoot every single day, if you aren't obedient enough to stop after you shoot your six Canada's, you're going to shoot way over your limit. You could, like with clients, because you get so many goes at them. Yeah. It's like if you're calling, if you're, if, okay, if the limit is six Canada geese and we're shooting cackling geese here in uh, Kansas, um, you got six guys out there, there's a 36 bird limit. Let's not even include, and the guide is not shooting. How many times do you need to say take them before those guys get six birds each? You would think six. You would think six or even four. You you would hope if if they're doing it right, obviously, mm-hmm. right? You would think that everybody should be able to shoot one bird per volley, in theory. Yes. But it's like a quarter of a bird or half a bird. Per guy, per volley. So yeah. like that would be like three birds, sometimes yeah. four or five. If you're killing four or five out of a group, because we only primarily run groups of six to eight. Yeah. If you're killing four or five with a group of six, like that's av- that's you've above got average. shooters. Yep, yep, yep. Right? Yep. So at that point you're you're really calling the shot like seven times, but you get groups or like ten or twelve. And that, times. That's 
Yeah, or 10 or 12 times. Well, if yeah. you've got a group of guys that are really bad shooters and you've got an unscrupulous guide out there or buddy that's tagging along that, I mean, he realistically could, if he's getting 10 goes and this is a guy who's dialed, like, it, that's just, it's a risk. It's not yeah. even and a that's, risk. That's why I went to no shooting. No more shooting. Right. right. It's, a, it's a good idea. And also, I think the clients appreciate it. Like, it, yeah. they, they definitely do. Well, once in a while, like, if the clients ask or, like, one of the guys really wants to go shoot, like, we always make sure it's cool. Yeah. You know? And I'm, like, even when I do it, when I decide I want to go shoot, you know, five mallards or I want to shoot my six lessers, like, I'm very good about, like, I've shot four. I can only shoot one more duck, guys, just letting you know. And they're yeah. like, you should four already, you know, and then the shit talking starts. Yeah, because there's fun, only but, like 10 ducks But it's down not worth it to me because you don't know who's who. Like as much, these guys could come and hunt with me for six, seven years in a row, and I still don't really know who the hell they are. And I don't have a problem, like personally, like when I shoot with people, even with buddies, I have no problem claiming a bird. Like, if I shot, I usually, like, if I know it's going to be a good day up in Wisconsin, the limit's three, hunting in Minnesota, the limit's five. If we're going to have a good day, I'm going to shoot five. We're gonna have five takeums. Yep. I don't shoot. I don't go for doubles and triples. I shoot one and I claim it. If somebody else maybe also kind of got some pellets in it too, I don't give a fuck. I claimed it. I shot at it. it was, the timing was just lined up. Hey, that's my bird. Put it right next to me. Like, yeah. I, I think it's kind of fucked up when guys don't want to claim birds or they like because it's like, all right, everybody, everybody gets three cookies. Like your kids, you know, and your mom brings out a plate of three yeah, cookies I, each. Like, I I'm do, taking yours. I do fully think that they just need to open up party hunting because uh, that's what everyone's doing. Yeah, it, yeah. How can it be okay for snow geese, which is a federally protected migrating bird? Because there's no limit on them for yeah. anybody. Yeah, it's okay to party hunt. Technically speaking, because of the no limits. Yeah, but you can't on anything else when everyone is party hunting. Because here's the thing. No one really knows what they shot or what they didn't shoot unless you're the only one to pull the trigger. Right. Or Unless you're, you're hunting with a buddy and your buddy always shoots the right bird and you always shoot the left bird. Or you got a guy like me who's just shooting one bird and claiming it because it's his it's his mantra. Yeah, but no Which one, nobody, nobody does that. Nobody does <laughs> that. Nobody does that. Nobody dude. does that. Dude, I hunted with uh Joe I hunted with feet down waterfowl in uh on a very, very good migrator day last year. I was the first guy to unload his gun by an hour. <laughs> you know, because like, I come up like bang! That one's mine because there's such a high band limit, or there's such a there's a good yep. band ratio up there. So I'm just like, bang, that one's mine. And then you know I wanted five chances on getting a band, and we actually did get two bands that day. Bands I was not in the drawing for, you know. But yeah. But I shot five. We had five goes. I unloaded my gun. I shot five geese, and I'm like, when's anybody else gonna be done? <laughs> 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 yeah, you, you just went and you just get your sled load your geese up, geese up and leave you're like I'll see you guys at dinner how about um, uh, I think it'd be fun to take a hunting trip with you and uh, but that's hard to do between the months of September through February would you ever be down to do like Mexico in March I would do Mexico in March that'd be fucking cool huh yeah. Yeah, or, or, you know, if uh, we ever wanted to do some, like, a uh, hunting trip or something together, we'd have to look in that March-April time frame, which brings, 
well, even April is getting tough. So yeah. when I ask, uh, when I ask you like, what's your dreams and goals, we kind of got to work within a narrow window, which is, that's also another tough thing about being a guide is yep. like, I normally purchase between, um, seven and nine hunting license in states and provinces per season. And when I accepted the job to come work with you, I knew that was going to come to an end. Yeah. And what are you at now? Three or four? Um, Saskatchewan. Well, I did not buy a Saskatchewan. I never hunted in Saskatchewan. Well, you're going to for the spring. Uh, yeah, I, I probably will yeah. for the spring. Um, and I, I didn't even bring a gun when I came up in the fall. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so then, yeah, just home. In Oklahoma. In Oklahoma. Oklahoma. But I was working there. I don't think I fired a shot. I fired a couple shots just at cripples and stuff. Then you shoot a pintail on your last day? I did shoot a pintail on my last day. See? <laughs> and now I we know a... why the pintails aren't breeding. It's because Nick's shooting them. <laughs> good, good work. It was tough down in Oklahoma, though, man. This year was really tough. It was a tough end of January and early February here. Right. Which is very, very, very uncommon. Yep, and it's very uncommon for Oklahoma as well. And... Uh... Our, uh, I, I hate when people end up being disappointed on a hunt that they drive so far and have, you know, they don't have unreasonable expectations when they expect it to be good. Yeah. And that's that's not how un- it should be. That's not unreasonable. Right. Like, we usually just absolutely crush. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason my last nine days of duck season, there's a waiting list. Yes. Like, they're already booked. Like that. Uh-huh. And usually my first two weeks in February, which we can still shoot lessers and specs... Or the best goose hunting of the of the season, mm-hmm. like historically, and it was not. It was a tough late late year this year, yeah. Which is unusual, and uh, I mean, if you were to get ten years uh, on average, how many Feb late January ducks and early February geese would you say would be difficult out of those ten? One, one, and and maybe that ha- two, maybe two, and that happened to us this last year. Yep. So. If, if it you, happens again, I'm going to start to get worried. If it happened two years in a row, that would be really weird. Yeah. Have you seen... Uh, God damn it. We're getting a little long, but this is a fun conversation. Yeah, it's good. Uh, um, have you seen in the last um, decade or maybe seven, eight years, the cackling Canada geese... Did I say cackling Canada geese? Yeah. That's an oxymoron. The cackling geese getting more difficult to decoy and to hunt? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely noticed that. I've... It could be a multitude of things, right? The hunting pressure's definitely gone up. Mm-hmm. The evolve of decoy products mm-hmm. and the ease of getting them. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone, like I've talked about this before, but like now everyone has a pretty decent lesser spread, right? Because, you know, Dive Bomb, Big Owls, other silhouette companies have came out with an affordable product that... If everyone in the group just buys one bag, yeah, like decoys, five dozen, like five dozen, and you got five. Your guys. group of buddies has, you know, thirty dozen decoys, right? Right. Let alone if you each buy like five bags, and then you've right. got like, you know, Infinity. ample ample amounts of decoys, and so. But also, what I've noticed, and I think it's more because of social media and platforms like YouTube, is these younger kids and even older men are realizing how quote unquote easy it is to run traffic or blah, blah, blah. When I was younger and still fun hunting around here, if we didn't have a feed of geese, we didn't go hunting. Mm-hmm. 
We went to the bar like normal humans, right? <laughs> normal 21-year-old kids. Sure. Now, guys are going to go set 150 dozen socks and silhouettes and run traffic. So they're seeing... It's not, very, very weird. So not only are they seeing better decoy spreads more often, but they're seeing them in more places. Yep. So it's not just like going out to their feed field and maybe the guy has a good spread. Maybe it doesn't, but they're they're seeing good spreads all the way to their feed yep. field. And or at least around here. Mm -hmm. I don't know about Oklahoma, Texas, any other state, because I've only really hunted here. Mm -hmm. But when I first started... The weekends were the tough days to get on permission, right? That's mm -hmm. when all the locals were hunting. There'd be some other guides running on the weekends. During the week, it was like us, mm -hmm. like nobody. And so realistically, the geese had all week to recoup. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they'd get their ass kicked. Well, now you can drive around and find someone goose hunting any morning or afternoon, any day of the week. Sure. There's more pressure yeah, weekday pressure. And they're saying our numbers are down of hunters, which I think is possibly true. But they've never really said, okay, back in the whenever, when they were saying we were at peak hunters, how many <clears throat> days did those hunters actually hunt? Was it five? Was it just the traditional me and Pat Paul go out on Thanksgiving and Christmas? Right. And now you've got hunters like you and I that are hunting 160 days a year, 200 days out of, the, out of a year. Mm -hmm. You've got... You know, the high school kids that are hunting four or five days a week, college kids that are hunting 30, 40 days because that's how long they have off. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the number of hunters is down, but the amount that we're hunting is exponentially higher. And also, I think there's been a transition from people who didn't used to hunt the way we hunt to hunting the way that we hunt now. Yep. So they become more noticeable because they're doing the same things that we're doing. Yep. Which... When I, uh, you know, us being relatively the same age, like when I was 16 uh, years old, I would drive to these county courthouses and I would buy the plat book oh, yeah. for the county. And then to scout, I would buy these um, giant Delorme atlases, they were called, for each state. And so to scout around, you would kind of have this like topographical atlas that would show all the roads on it. And I didn't even have a cell phone. My parents were just letting me drive off into the abyss. Out yeah, to like, or you had to drive to the corner and hope that there was a street sign. A street so you sign. Figure out where the hell you're yeah, at. Yeah, and then yeah, and then figure and it then out. Figure on the out end. what direction you're looking, so you can go. All right, I'm in the southwest quadrant of number 17 Huntsville map. Yep. Yeah, yep. Exactly. And then you would have it. to figure out who the yep. landowner was, and yep. it was it was it, it wasn't uh, an unsurmountable task to do it, but you just had to put the effort in. You didn't have to just drop twenty nine ninety nine on your local Onyx and start pounding pounding on doors. Yep. So it became more accessible to a general population to actually do something like that. And you're going to see more people starting to do that style of hunting. And what also I think has changed that they didn't do back in the day is scout. Right. They just go right. out to their I think own. a lot of hunters went to their whatever ponds they had permission on. They threw out a spread and they hunted, right? Yep. Now from YouTube, social media, Instagram, all, all that crap. People understand how important scouting is. Yeah. And so the birds actually aren't getting a break. Right. And, and that's, that's... If you haunt them on the water, you're a dumbass for geese. And here's... There, I've said it. Be <laughs> mad. I don't give a shit. Here's what I've always felt, too, about water hunting versus field hunting is geese don't like gunfire. They don't like getting shot at. They don't like getting killed. 
but the potential to expose so many more geese and birds to that gunfire is on the water. Because if you go out to a field, say you got a water spot with like 5,000 birds on it, you're hunting a field where maybe only 800 are, of that 5,000 are gonna come to it. Of that 800, 400 of them are gonna tell you to get fucked. Of the 400 that don't tell you to get fucked, only a four, you're gonna get four goes between five and 20 birds. So you're, you got four goes at five to 20 birds that got shot at and got really scared and really freaked out. You go over to that water spot. All 5,000. All 5,000 yep. now you can expose to that level of like terror. And so you're just creating, when you hunt a field, you have a 5% impact on the roost. And it's not, that's not good. It's a 5% bad thing. When yep. you hunt the roost, you have a 100% bad thing. Yeah. So if you're an outfitter and you're hunting roost pawns in the middle of season, you're a dumbass. I said it. <laughs> and, and I, I purposely lease water around here so no one can hunt, myself included. Right. As a I, I paid $2,500 this year. I gave the guy $2,500 and said, do not let <laughs> anyone hunt. Nobody. That's not a, even me. I don't even want to move. hunt. That's a good move. Yeah. Because, it, yeah, it, it's just it, when birds are exposed to gunfire. How can you it's, – it's a question. If you want a season-long success – like, how can we kill as many of these things as possible without freaking them all right the fuck out? Yeah. Like, getting them out of here. Because yeah. um, hunting pressure is definitely a damn, damn important aspect on where these geese are going to sit or if they're going to tolerate it. And I get why people do it, right? I'm not trying to be hypocritical. We've hunted water before, mm -hmm. right? Years past when I was younger or desperate or whatever, right? And I get it. it water is the great equalizer when it comes to geese. Mm-hmm. It is way easier to shoot them over water than it is in the field. Yeah. Right? You're usually going to have a better hide. But that doesn't mean it's okay. Right. And that's something that I've really changed in the last five years. Like, we're not – we're going to do our absolute best unless we know it's a true loaf, which does happen. But 99% of the shoots that you see where people are calling them goose loafs on the internet. Yeah, they're not. They're roost ponds. <laughs> Trust yeah. me. And then the roost pond – it empties out. Maybe it empties out for five days. Maybe it empties out for ten. Maybe it empties out to the end of the season. Yep. But it, it it's going to have an impact. It's just like when you shoot a field. You got a field. Like Let's go back to our pond with 5,000 geese on it and 1,000 are going to that field. You shoot that field. Tomorrow there's zero on it. Yep. But maybe three days later there's there's 50 back in there. Four days later, there's 200 back in there. It's the same thing with the roost pond, too, except we're not talking about 20% of the roost. We're talking about 100%. Yeah. So, and, and these birds, especially cackling geese, which uh, flying 400 miles is just another day for them. Like, it, it's a big, big deal. And it's something that you can hunt. It's possible to intelligently hunt a roost, but let's just say it's not possible. Yeah, why don't you do it, like... Right before season closes. You could do that. Yeah. You know? Or right before the split. Oh, mm -hmm. we have a two-week split or something. Yeah, and then they'll let that spawn, roost right? build back up. Right. But, uh, hey, anyways, dude, we've been going uh, a long time. Let's thank our sponsors, the Nick Johnson Signature Series Goose Call from Pacific Calls. Check out the entire Pacific Call line on PacificCustomCalls.com. Check out Prairie Limits Outfitters and Big Kansas Outdoors, PrairieLimitsOutfitters.com. And is it BigKansasOutdoors.com? Yep. 
Big Kansas Outdoors. Book a hunt with Ben. Come hunt with Ben and me up in Canada either this spring, next fall, um, next year. Um, and uh, check out the Goose Tech app or shoot us any messages. Shoot me messages with anything, that, any questions you have, and I'll be happy to help you out. Thanks for tuning in, and catch you next week. <laughs>